Our Bible reading this evening continues our thoughts on Hebrews and we start in Hebrews chapter 5 beginning at verse 11 and carrying on through chapter 6. We have much to say about this and the this that's referred to there is in the preceding passage that we read this morning where God appoints Jesus as our great high priest. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless, and is in danger of being cursed, in the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. 
we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In his book, The The Seven Deadly Sins, Tony Campolo tells the story of a young woman who lacked any semblance of joy in her life even though she'd accepted Christ as her saviour. She lived a life of relative piety and she went to church on Sundays with fair regularity. Nevertheless, life was depressing for her and she seemed bored with it. She went to a Christian psychotherapist for help but after several sessions with him, she felt that the effort was futile. Then one day... She came into her therapist's office with her face radiant with excitement. I've had the most wonderful day, she said. This morning I couldn't get my car started. So I called the pastor and asked him if he could drive me to my appointment with you. He said he would, but on the way he had to stop by the hospital and make a few calls. Well, I went with him. And while I was in the hospital, I visited some elderly people in one of the wards. I read from the Bible and prayed with them. And by the time the morning was over, I was higher than a kite. I haven't felt this good in years. The psychotherapist quickly responded, well, now we know how to make you happy. Our problem is solved. Now we know how to keep you out of the doldrums. And much to his surprise, the young woman answered, you don't expect me to do this kind of thing every day, do you? (laughs) Campolo's comment is, salvation comes as a gift. But the joy of salvation demands disciplined action. Most Christians he knows have just enough of the gospel to make them miserable, not enough to make them joyful. Back in 590, it was Pope Gregory who included laziness, or sloth, or achidy, or apathy in his list of the seven deadly sins. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas said, Sloth is sluggishness of the mind which neglects to do the good. It's evil in its effect if it so oppresses men as to draw them away entirely from good deeds. It is a spiritual apathy. It's a mind that says, oh, I can't be bothered. It's too much effort. I'm bored. It's a state of mind. It's not quite the same as, oh, I really don't want to get out of bed this morning. And we need to be careful because... Apathy is a kind of cousin of depression in some ways, but the two are actually very, very different. Depression is an illness. A sloth that is one of the seven deadly sins is an attitude. And the last thing I want is to make people who are struggling with depression feel guilty because you're committing one of the seven deadly sins, because the two are not the same. And I really do want to emphasise that. Depression by its very nature is something over which we have little if any control and it can't be sorted out simply by telling people to pull their socks up and make an effort. But, that said, we do live in a culture which makes us vulnerable both to depression and to a mindset that says, oh, I'm bored, I really can't face making the effort. 
And there are a variety of reasons for that. Partly it's diet. Snacking on fast food requires a lot less effort than preparing a proper meal. Just order a takeaway, stick something in the microwave, and it's done without any effort. But it doesn't provide the same level of nourishment. And so our resources for making more of an effort next time are further depleted in what begins to become a vicious cycle. It is scary, the number of people in our culture who don't bother eating a proper meal from one week's end to the next. It's an unhealthy lifestyle that blunts the mind and reduces our capacity to live life to the full. So that we only do what we have to do and try and get away with doing as little as possible. The other day when I was feeling a bit fed up, I was reminded of um, Rudyard Kipling's uh, little poem, The Camellia's Hump. Remember that one? When you're feeling blue, uh, the solution is to get a spade and a shovel or so and dig till you gently perspire. Because it comes from having too little to do, was was his opinion. Then there's um, entertainment. Instant entertainment is available for us on the television at the press of a button, but it turns us into passive couch potatoes. And experts who know about these things say even the overstimulation of the brain combined with fast, through fast-moving images combined with a lack of physical exercise is a perfect recipe for innovation. The mind is going and the body is going and the result is that everything just seems to be too much effort. William Barclay perceptively observed that the characteristic modern disease is boredom And boredom is the direct result of selfishness. So long as a man lives on the principle of why should I do it, let someone else do it, he's bound to be bored. The interest of life lies in service. So my wife's philosophy in bringing up four children, as soon as one of them says I'm bored, is I've got a job for you to do. It's a remarkable cure she's found over the years. But I'm not just talking about <coughs> laziness here. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of underlying attitude that can manifest itself in a reluctance to take responsibility for something. To say, well, the buck stops with me. Uh, and, and apathy says, well, it doesn't stop with me. It's somebody else's problem. It's not my problem. It's nothing to do with me, really. I'll do my bit, and if that doesn't work, then somebody else will sort it out because I've just done what's expected of me and no one can expect more of me than that. And if it doesn't work, it's not my problem. So I asked Sue for an example of this. She said, well, you know, if if you're vacuuming the house and you run the hoover or whatever it is over that section of carpet, you think, well, it must be clean because I've run the, the Dyson over it. Even though you can see it's not, you've done your bit and so you just move on and leave that that dirt there, even though you can see it. You've been through the motions and you think, you know, I've done my piece and therefore it must be clean. She didn't say that I did that, of course. (laughs) I am the only person in the house, apart from her, who uses the vacuum cleaner. But I do use it a bit more often than she does. (laughs) But it is... It is a kind of going through the motions. It is a frame of mind that I have to say isn't helped by a kind of tick box culture that prevails in the workplace these days. So if you can tick all the boxes, 
then that's the job done. And because you know, original sin perhaps makes us inherently lazy, you put the effort into finding ways of ticking all the boxes. And even if all the boxes are ticked and you know that the checklist isn't really being fulfilled, it doesn't matter because you tick the boxes. And the goal that that exercise is supposed to achieve can be missed. But it's the attitude that says, well, I've done my bit. You know, I've been able to tick all the boxes. If it doesn't work, it's somebody else's problem because they should have designed the tick boxes more accurately. I've played my part. We live in a culture where there is a tendency to avoid responsibility. And that, to my mind, is where the whole apathy thing finds the greatest expression. Insurance expert Confused.com I'm sorry, guys, says this is a a problem perhaps with the younger generation. 32% of British people aged between 25 and 39 are still living at home with their parents. Now, there are good, sound financial reasons why that may be the case. But what becomes a source of concern is where sometimes it looks like they are enjoying being looked after rather than taking responsibility. And what Confused.com found was that one in four living at home said, well, the main reason they do that is because they get their meals cooked for them. And one in ten said it's because somebody else cleans up after them. And over a quarter of adults aged under 40 admitted they lacked the basic skills to live on their own. It's always been done for them. And, and that's part of, you know, people have become passive recipients in all kinds of ways. Passive recipients of things being done for them, passive recipients of entertainment being provided for them, just being able to do a job by going through the motions without taking responsibility for it. We live in a culture where that is allowed to flourish. And it is an underlying attitude of apathy that really is troubling the author to the Hebrews. There is so much that the Christians he's writing to could and should be doing. Taking responsibility for their spiritual lives, progressing in the Christian faith, discipling others. You could be teachers by now, he says. But instead of progressing towards maturity, you're still stuck in the kindergarten knowing your ABCs. If you're up to it, he says, I could give you good, solid teaching. As it is, I can only feed you with milk. You still can't tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong because you haven't made the effort. You're too slow to learn. You don't pay enough attention. We've all done it, haven't we? We've all said, that was a brilliant sermon on Sunday. But I can't remember what it was about. And and I I laugh about it with everybody else because we all do it. But what bothers me a little bit is if you can't remember what it's about... You can't be doing it. And there's a danger that, you know, sermon becomes a little bit of entertainment. That's why I'm wary of telling too many jokes in sermons, because of raising the entertainment level. I know Steve Brady, who uh, with me has spoken uh, on occasion at a Tenerife conference, was, was devastated when a couple said to him, we, we so loved your messages. We recorded them all, and gave them all to our friends. But we cut out all the teaching bit, we just gave them all the jokes. That was not the point at all, as far as he was concerned. But they latched onto the the humour, skipped the content. 
So perhaps in an effort to jolt people out of their complacency, the writer of the Hebrews warns them in the starkest and strongest possible terms of the dangers of backsliding. Those who fall away, he says, can't be brought back to repentance because in effect they're crucifying the Son of God and exposing him to public contempt all over again. The point is that Jesus is God's lifeline to us. And if we spurn that, there are no other rescue measures available. And he's not talking about the deliberate and conscious act of rejection and committing apostasy. I think the New English translation talks about committing apostasy there, as if it's a deliberate act. Now the imagery is is one of falling by the wayside. It's giving up. It's failing to finish. It's just not carrying something through to the end. That's what is, is bugging and worrying the author for the Hebrews. And it can start with giving into feelings that say, oh, I don't feel like going to church today. Or I can't be bothered to read my Bible. Or, or prayer is too much like hard work. And we all get feelings like that from time to time. Because we all get times when we're feeling low and, and life is an effort and a struggle. That's part of the, the ups and downs of normal human life. But when we start giving in to that, those thoughts and it becomes a kind of mindset and a habit and part of our personality, then that is really when we start to head into trouble. And the writer of the Hebrews wants to nip that in the bud by warning of the dire consequences of letting things slide in that kind of way. Because it does matter. It really does matter. God has given us so much, he says. We can't afford to take it for granted. We have been enlightened. We've tasted God's heavenly gift. We've shared in the Holy Spirit. We've tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age. How can we discount all of that as being of no value and of no consequence? Yet when God touches our lives in this way, When God gives us his spirit, that ought to make a difference to us. Because God's spirit entering our hearts is like the rain falling on thirsty ground. The question is, what kind of fruit will we bear as a result of that? If people work hard on the land and God has supplied an abundance of rain, then the land should produce a crop that is a sign of God's blessing. But supposing, despite the rain, all the land produces nothing but thorns and thistles. Then the writer says the land is worthless and what grows on it is only fit to be burned as if it were under a curse. So the question is, God has given us his spirit. What kind of harvest are we producing for God? His spirit entering your life is like the rain falling on dry ground. But if, like me, you're a reluctant gardener, you will know that the wet spring we've had this year produces an abundance of weeds. If you want a nice garden that grows vegetables or flowers or grass, it's hard work digging up the soil, planting good seed, making sure that what you want is growing there and what you don't want isn't. Left to itself, a garden will produce weeds. Left to drift our spiritual lives will produce weeds. It takes effort 
application, discipline, hard work to produce the fruit that comes from God's Spirit. Fields that are neglected and left to go to rack and ruin are never going to produce a good crop. And in a hot climate where every drop of rainfall is precious, it's a criminal waste to have rain falling on a field that's only going to produce weeds at the end of the day. So when God pours out his spirit into our lives, he doesn't want to see weeds growing in our hearts. For his spirit to bear fruit, there needs to be hard work and discipline and application. Otherwise, there's a real prospect of incurring God's judgment. Now, the writer of the Hebrews makes it clear that that he doesn't think that this is going to be the outcome of the Christians he's writing to. He kind of backpedals fairly quickly after that. He, He issues the threat of the danger of losing your salvation because that's precisely what he doesn't want to happen to his readers. He's quick to reassure them that in their case, he's quite confident that they are not heading that is not going to be the outcome of their lives. He's confident that such a disaster will not befall them. You've worked hard, you've loved God's people in the past, and of course you are still doing that, aren't you? But what he wants to avoid is the danger of laziness or complacency. God's promises are 100% guaranteed. For one thing, God can't lie. For another, God has backed up his promises to us with an oath, swearing that he will deliver on what he says. So we can have complete confidence that God's promises will not fail. But the fact that God has promised so much should produce in our hearts a response to say, Lord, you've given me so much. Let me be faithful in using what you've been given. That to those, from those to whom much is given... Much is required. So we need to play our part by being diligent and by following the example of those who showed us that it is by faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. It is hard work. It's not an easy ride. It's not a free ride. But it's worth it in the end. God has promised and given so much. Our response shouldn't be so, well, thank you very much. I'm not bothered. But having received so much, that should inspire us to give so much in return. Today is Father's Day. The most expensive Father's Day gift ever was apparently given last year to Jay-Z by his wife Beyonce to celebrate his becoming a dad for the first time. It was a $40 million Bombardier Challenger 850 aeroplane which has a living room, kitchen, bedroom, and two bathrooms. I hope he's made good use of it this past year. I haven't seen it for sale on eBay yet. A gift like that, you don't take for granted. A gift like that, you recognise that you're special to the giver. Sooner or later, even a $40 million aircraft will go on the scrap heap. God has given us a gift for eternity. The gift of his own son and eternal salvation with it. What are you going to do with God's gift to you? And how are you going to respond to the giver? (coughs) Let's pray.
Lord, you know that we wax hot and cold. You know that there are times when we can sit down to pray and read the Bible and we just feel so close to you and so full of your spirit. It's a joy. You know there are times when we struggle to find the time and when it's an effort and we feel we get nothing out of it. Thank you that through all that you never waver. You never pull back from us. So Lord, we we pray that in our weakness you would keep tight hold of our lives. And Lord, where we feel like we're not where we should be, it's our heart's prayer to, to change us and to move us to where you want us to be. Where we feel like we're empty, it's our heart's prayer that you would fill us again. Where we recognise that we are sluggish, we pray that you would stir us up. Lord, would you strengthen our resolve to live for you? And where we're struggling, would you not come alongside to encourage and support and renew us? Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of life he's given to us. Help us to use that gift for you. In Jesus' name.